From the land of back-to-back World War champs, it's the Medicare for the Lazy Man podcast. The podcast that hopes Democrats don't Obama-size Medicare. After he moved north, Oklahoma City was never the same. Medicare expert Doug Jones. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another exciting, thrill-packed episode of the Medicare for the Lazy Man podcast. I'm hoping that my Canadian nephew, Drew McMillan, told you who I am. I, he's a reliable guy. I have no reason to think he's fallen down on the job, but just in case he uh, slept in today, uh, my name is Doug Jones. I help people feel confident about their encounter with Medicare. Most of the people that I encounter are encountering Medicare at some point in the fairly near future. And I try to help people feel as though that's that's going to be a, a stellar experience for them. It's going to give them excellent health insurance protection at a very reasonable price. And they're going to be able to acquire that without accidentally screwing things up. So uh, how do I express this uh, assistance that I provide to people. I do it by means of my book, Medicare for the Lazy Man 2023. It is available for you at barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com. And uh, I will say that if you go to Amazon, you're going to have your choice of four different editions that you can choose from. You can have the very uh, nicely priced uh, $3.80 Kindle version, and you can get that right away on your Kindle reader. Or you can get the Audible version, whereby you can listen while I do all the work. You can get the tried-and-true paperback edition, which is what most people wind up buying. And at Audible, or excuse me, at Amazon, you may get the magnificent $22 hardcover keepsake family edition, where you can gather the kids around the roaring fireplace and tell them Medicare stories. Uh, some will scare them. They're spooky Medicare stories. Some of the stories will be enlightening and and uh, thrilling. So that's your choice, but I highly recommend consideration of the $22 hardcover Medicare for the Lazy Man 2023. Speaking of men, uh, one manly man sitting across the screen from me here in the podcast studio is Randy Carson. Hello, Randy. Good to see you again. Good morning, Mr. Jones. I was just practicing my intro. Uh, let me let me give you a little short, you know, synopsis of it. I, I can't wait. Was the night before Christmas and all through the house. Uh, you like that? Do you like that start? I, did you make that up? That's fantastic. I well, I, I I was I know I heard it someplace, but I don't remember where. Well, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. I'd say run with it. <laughs> I think you're you on to a winner. How you doing today? Well, I'd be, uh, as you have described in the past, I'm busier than a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest because this is the last day of AEP, annual election period, and it has brought all kinds of people out of the woodwork to ask me for Medicare assistance. Now, I'm happy to do that. I am not going to look a gift horse in the mouth or complain about this at all, but God, it has um, uh, a lot of people don't understand that Medicare supplements, which is the kind of Medicare insurance you and I espouse, don't have anything to do with AEP. 
So I tell people, hey, I'm happy to help you uh, and, and your hundreds of friends who have joined you. But in reality, we can put this off a month or two when it's not so busy. Now, I don't like to do that. I want to take care of any customer who presents themselves instantly, if possible. So when you ask how things are going, I would have to say they're out of control. And uh, that's out of control. Oh, my. That's a good thing, isn't it, Doug? It is typically a good thing. I should have prepared better for it. So shame on me. And uh, next year, I will have everything smooth and, you know, running perfectly. Like 10W40 Valvoline, huh? Yeah, there's actually a snot reference hiding in there someplace. I didn't want to gross out the audience this early in the day. Many people are probably listening early in the morning. Well, I'm not going to let you off. I, I am going to march this episode along pretty smartly because I Good. know you're busy. Well, I need and the discipline. Me being the nominal producer, I, I feel like it's my job, but I'm not going to let you off easy. All right. Well, then uh, let, let's uh, get to the important uh, okay. content. We are back to the stupid laws. Ah, my favorite. Okay. So I am going, this is an easy one. I know you'll probably know this one. Hawaii. What? This this law hails from Hawaii. Okay. And uh, I was going to ask you. Uh, there's. I'll, I will. I'll give you a, a fill in the blank question because you know. Bottom line is you'll never know. You'll never know what this is unless I give you a fill in the blank. But yeah. If I do give you a fill of, fill in the blank, you'll probably know it. Well, let's see. Let's find out All if right. that's true. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Don't put blank. In your blank. Oh, boy, that's two blanks. You promised me a blank, <laughs> and now I have two blanks to deal with. I'm guessing, uh, my first thought was it was going to be something about Pele, the goddess of volcanoes or something, but that doesn't lend itself to having two blanks. So I'm going to forget Pele for the time being, and I'm going to go to one of the crops that is grown in Hawaii. Or, um, yeah, I would say that uh, don't put milk in your coffee they grow a lot of coffee in hawaii i'm gonna say don't oh, put milk in your oh boy i can tell by the no, <laughs> by no. the look on your face that's not anywhere no, close you, even we're no we're nowhere close let me give you okay i'm just gonna give you another hint okay don't put coins in ah. your blank oh okay in your grass skirt <laughs> nope. Not, not that I wear a grass skirt that often, but if I did, I wouldn't be putting coins in it. That's for darn sure. Well, the last time I saw you in a grass skirt, we won't even talk about that one. No, that's that's why you uh, <laughs> went away covering your eyes, screaming, as I recall. <laughs> okay, I, well, you know, you, you, I think that's no, a little too big no for me. You're no, you're no, you're not even in the neighborhood today because yeah. you know I know I know you're not from Hawaii. So here we go, Hawaii. Don't put coins in your ears. Now, the basic bottom line as to why that was passed uh -huh. is in the early 20th century when Hawaii was part of the United States. Isn't it already part of the United States? It certainly anyway, is. An order was issued to destroy the local currency. Ooh. The island natives came up with an ingenious way of hiding coins in their ears. Uh, the state government, however, put out a law to curtail this habit. So I don't know what they did to you if they found you with coins in your ears, cut out, cut off your ears. I don't know. But that was the reason for it. Um, you know, as soon as they, we tried to get them to accept the United States currency, they were not all all for that. 
Well, that's kind of interesting. In order to get coins out of your ears, I imagine they'd have to hang you upside down by your ankles. Yes. And shake shake you, probably. Yes, so, yeah, I'm sure. So, so this law was passed in the early 20th century. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, yes. The early 20th century, you okay. can't stick coins in your ears. So, All right. You know. Well, Hawaii became a state in 1960. And uh, it was, um, so they had plenty of time before 1960 to do stupid things like that. And I'm guessing that the United States, uh, having taken over Hawaii, was trying to assimilate them into the United States uh, economy and, and culture. And they might have been a little heavy handed in that effort. You think? Yeah, it seems to me. So, uh, <laughs> but that certainly is an interesting uh, law. You yeah. have uh, you have delivered again, as promised. I'm telling you, I've got a thousand of them. Well, you know something? Yeah, we, we need get to, to work. Start, we need to get to work. So I'm going to ask you to march forward on the real stuff. And I'm going to go ahead and mute myself out. And why don't you give us some good Medicare stuff? All right. Well, here's the thing. Don't go too far away because I thought maybe you and I could do a little quiz about the myths of Medicare. Sure. You might remember our one of our favorite podcast Medicare uh, experts is uh, Tony with an I because Tony, I'm a girl. I'm a girl. And I spell Doug with a G because I'm a guy. That's well, right. I, you know, I look at Tony's stuff all the time, and uh, today she has a quiz about the myths of Medicare. And I thought, you know, wouldn't this be fun to see how much Randy knows after almost four years? Yeah, three oh, years. 20, yeah, it, 21, it, 22, 23, almost four years of Yeah, we're uh, coming podcast. up on four years and 5,042 episodes. Oh, boy. Well, here we go. Let me see how much you've absorbed about this Medicare subject that we talk about every time we record a podcast. Um, so uh, this myth number one, a person. Now, this is a true or false, I believe. Myth number one, a person can enroll in Medicare anytime after they turn 65 without any penalties. So what's your verdict on that one, Randy? Uh-oh, I think I think he froze up. Oh, true. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> I wish I could make an irritating ear splitting noise like Randy does. This is false. According to Tony, this idea is wrong. If you are not working full time for a company with true group benefits, or if you have an individual health insurance plan and wait later than age 65 uh, and 90 days, don't forget you've got three months after you turn 65, then you can receive the famous Medicare Part B penalty. 10% each month uh, for each 12 month period or for each year after you did not enroll when you were supposed to. That penalty lasts for the rest of your life in Medicare, which is basically going to be the rest of your life, I would think. I knew so, there was a reason I kept asking you questions because you keep <laughs> me you keep me out of trouble. Well, so far I've been able to do that. Uh, you, you know, it's uh, and you would look good in stripes. I'm not saying you shouldn't necessarily yeah, do I, some hard I, time, but yeah, it, I need vertical stripes because horizontal stripes and me are not doing so well this year. No, I understand that they're not as slimming as vertical stripes would no, be. No, 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 no. Yeah, myth number two: Medicare is free. Is that true or false? It's false. It's not. Well, okay. Let me give you two different answers. It's not free because you paid for it, right? Okay. But it's you don't have any premiums to get Medicare Part A, right? That's correct. What about Part B? Uh, you pay a premium. Uh, 
I don't remember just exactly what it is. You've got it off the top of your head. It's probably $129.16, but I don't have that information. It's $174 and change next year. And that typically comes out of people's uh, social security checks. So yeah. they're not they're not seeing the actual cost uh, regularly. They're not writing a check to pay for it. It's just kind of invisible. But uh, so the question was, is Medicare free? Your answer was yes and no. And the real answer is no, it's not free. So we're going to okay. give you half credit for that. Okay, uh, I'll take it. <laughs> that trick isn't going to work every time. But myth number three. Most baby boomers believe that Medicare is just like group or individual health insurance plans. Is that true or is that false? What a stupid question. Yeah. You know, she needs a, a proofreader. I'm a ba- I'm a baby boomer and I don't I I don't understand that question, but I I'm, I'm going to say false. Yeah, well, I'm going to go with your answer because uh frankly, the question is ridiculous. Do most baby boomers believe Medicare is just like group or individual health insurance? The answer is False. What it should have been was, uh, it should have said, uh, is Medicare like regular health insurance for individuals or for uh, companies? And and that answer is false. So I apologize, Randy, for not proofreading that question before I posed it to yeah. you. But the explanation is original Medicare is completely different from group or individual health insurance. Medicare has two parts, part A and part B. Part A has a deductible that can be used up to six times a year for an inpatient hospital stay. Part B of Medicare includes doctor's office visits and doctor performing surgery, outpatient services and surgery, scans, x-rays, chemotherapy and radiation, wheelchairs, walkers, and the list goes on. But And Part B has a once-per-year deductible, whereas Part A, you can use that up to six times if you keep going back to the hospital. It's highly unlikely that would ever happen. But if you've got a Medicare supplement, you don't have to worry about that six-time uh, usage of the Part A deductible, and uh, you really don't have to worry about out-of-pocket costs to any great extent at all. But uh, it's completely ridiculous. Tony, you got to get a proofreader. Ooh, I think that's it. I think we hit the end of the line. So I didn't do so well. I, I yeah. really didn't do, I'm, I'm surprised. No, I'm not surprised actually, but I, I was hoping to do a little better. You would think after four years worth of working together that I would have picked up a little bit more information, but I think that Tony was making, I think she was making trick questions. Well, she sure didn't make it easy. And I'm going to come back in four years. Uh, hopefully she'll have another uh, series of questions by then. And we will revisit this. I bet you'll do better in four years. I I hope so. I I really want I really want to be smarter than I am on Medicare. I'll come to whatever loony bin they've got you locked up in, and we'll <laughs> we'll try the quiz again. Okay, now here's a thing uh, that is um, a lot of people have concerns and confusion about drugs and drug pricing and drug availability and uh, the Medicare uh, drug plans and all that stuff. And so I ran across an article here that I'm hoping will be helpful. But the headline is how PBMs hurt local pharmacies. And I think back to the pharmacies that were in my small town and the neighboring towns. As a kid, we had several pharmacies that were run by local pharmacists. And uh, we had... um, in the neighboring towns or other, the, the one that 
comes to mind most recently is a, uh, a drugstore in Geneva, Illinois called Riley's. And uh, that was beloved. There were people that would uh, buy uh, Medicare drug plans that were hugely expensive just so that O'Reilly, just so that Riley's drugstore would be in their network. And they didn't care how much extra they paid in order to support Riley's. And it closed a couple of years ago, as they all do. Uh, a good friend of mine that I went to high school with, Ken Gustafson, married a woman who is descended from the barbed wire dynasty that uh, started out in the 1800s. And they uh, owned a pharmacy in uh, a very small town west of St. Charles called Elburn, Illinois. And they ran that business together from the time they were youthful till the time they were about ready to retire. And then a big chain, I think it was Osco, marched into town and bought them up lot, lock, stock, and barrel, but treated them right as far as I understand. Uh, so they turned their family drugstore into a chain store, but at least they were rewarded for their years of work and uh, years uh, of um, vacationless you know, weekends and holidays uh, where they had to be on duty. So anyway, this article is about how uh, PBMs hurt local pharmacies. A PBM is a pharmacy benefit manager. <clears throat> so local pharmacies are boarding up nationwide is how this thing starts out. Kind of a depressing thought for those of us who like to deal with family-owned uh, small businesses. Nearly 2,200 American pharmacies shut their doors between 2017 and 2020, leaving 20,000 American pharmacies in business nationwide. And that's about half the number there was in 1980. Rural areas are particularly hit hard. About 630 rural communities that had access to at least one pharmacy in March of 2003 had none by 2018. These closures are bad for local communities and patients' health. When small independent shops close, patients lose access to the pharmacist who personally knows the local residents. They have personal knowledge of their health conditions, prescribed medications, and the potential interactions those medicines might have with new ones. Local communities may also lose a convenient place to get a flu shot or some other immunizations or blood pressure screening. Small pharmacies often operate as town hubs and many sponsor local events. Although their numbers are falling, they still employ more than 300,000 people. Fortunately, lawmakers across both parties are aware of the plight of the local pharmacy and uh, the consequences of their diminishing numbers. This is why bipartisanship has rallied behind three dozen bills during this session of Congress. These bills aim to curb the power of PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, the giant secretive corporations that have played a significant role in driving drug prices higher and independent pharmacies out of business. Now, it's easy to tell which side of the uh, issue this particular author is on, but uh, let's read on to see if uh, there's any basis in fact for this. PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, negotiate discounts from drug makers on behalf of insurers. In exchange, pharmaceutical companies receive favorable inclusion of their products on a plan's formulary. So that what that says is that um, a PBM acts as a middleman between the drug maker who wants to sell their product and the insurance company who can be induced to stock that product, kind of like in their insurance store. So a PBM arranges uh, a deal between the drug maker and the uh, insurance company. PBMs also administer 
reimbursements from the system's payers, insurers, federal and state governments, and corporations. Uh, those payments, um, let's say, two, they administer reimbursements from the payers, which I just listed, to providers, including pharmacies and clinics. Their apparent role in the health system is to lower drug costs and save consumers money. Instead, PBMs have made the system increasingly complex, enabling them to extract outsized revenue from it while crowding out the small mom-and-pop drugstores that have long supplied various community needs. Three big PBMs, CVS Caremark, Express Scripts, and OptumRx, control 80% of the market for prescription drugs. Today's biggest PBMs are vertically integrated with drugstore chains and their mail delivery services and the biggest insurance companies. That creates additional opportunities for advantageous self-dealing. Drugstores buy medicines wholesale, but PBMs decide how much pharmacies get reimbursed for dispensing medications to patients with insurance. There's no legal requirement for PBMs to provide equal reimbursement so they can favor affiliated pharmacies while leaving independents out. PBMs also coordinate with their insurance companies to steer plan enrollees to their pharmacy groups. They do this by restricting where patients can access specific medicines or requiring patients to refill pres prescriptions at an affiliated pharmacy, no matter which drugstore uh, supplied the original dose. PBMs can also encourage insurers to push unaffiliated pharmacies out of network. Hence, Patients face higher prices if they stick with their neighborhood drugstore. As one would expect, the operations of these middlemen take place out of sight. Rules for the disclosure of contractual and other arrangements are practically non-existent. PBMs also have taken on the role of quality control enforcer in prescription dispensing. Purportedly, this is to incentivize high-quality service. In reality, PBMs use their audits to justify clawing back fees from, you guessed it, small independent pharmacies. During the COVID-19 pandemic, some PBMs even revoked reimbursements for failing to obtain patient signatures. These clawbacks, called direct or indirect remuneration fees, wreak havoc on the small business finances of independent drugstores. It's time to put an end to secret and unsavory practices. It's time PBMs were required to make their negotiations public, forbidding the practice of clawing back reimbursements and allowing patients to access the local pharmacy of their choosing. Well, well, that turned into an editorial uh, rather than a, an explanation, except for the fact that PBMs are the middlemen. That's, I think, an important fact to remember. But uh, it's kind of depressing that our Local uh, drugstores are under extreme duress, and the result is is uh, because of these PBMs, these pharmacy benefit managers. Um, okay, there was an article here. Rosalind Carter died a few days ago, and uh, apparently Jimmy Carter, a president that I am not really uh, <clears throat> a fan of, was in hospice or is in hospice, although he was able to... Uh, go to Rosalind's funeral. And of course, the clock is ticking on him, unfortunately. But uh, that sparked somebody to write an article about hospice and how long people can stay in hospice. And I'm not a big expert on hospice, so I thought maybe this would be interesting for the uh, Medicare audience because a lot of people are going to be dealing with hospice at some point in the future. 
So, uh, and hospice, just for the record, is um, covered by Part A of Medicare. So the question here is, can someone outlive their hospice stay? Is hospice appropriately structured to care for people dying from chronic illnesses? And the author says, we need to talk about this matter of life and death. Former President Carter uh, entered month 10 on home hospice care, just as Rosalind Carter entered hospice uh, last November 17th, and she died in just a few days. Generally, people associate hospice with imminent death especially if they have no close experience with it. And in many cases, they're right. Out of the more than 1.5 million people choosing hospice services in America, half of those die within 18 days of admission to hospice. And one in 10 of those people die in the first two days. The Carters perhaps will join other longtime couples who die within days to months of each other. But the drastic difference in the lengths of their hospice care, brings attention to this question. Can someone outlive their hospice stay? End-of-life care advocates have championed the Carters' willingness to publicly share their decision to enter hospice because it brings needed education and attention to the extended benefits of hospice care, such as home visits from interprofessional team members, equipment and supplies, and access to on-call support. But what happens when somebody enters hospice expecting to live six months or less, a requirement for admission, and then does not die? So the uh, qualification to be able to enter hospice is a life expectancy of six months or less. But a lot of those people apparently outlive that um, prediction. This is not good news to me, my family, or my mother, that headline uh, shouts. So let's see what that's all about. The simple answer is that hospice patients must be reevaluated for care every 90 days within the first six months, and then every 60 days thereafter, with a physician documenting that the patient remains eligible for hospice. However, recertifying patients for care or removing them from care if their condition is not declining is anything but simple. So here's, they quote the daughter of a uh, 104-year-old patient living with Alzheimer's disease who was removed from hospice despite the daughter's wishes. In a letter sent to Medicare appealing the discontinuing of her mother's hospice services, which she first began receiving in June of 2020, the woman wrote, I am told that this is good news since her weight is stable, her meds are stable, and she has no acute needs. This is not good news to me my family, or my mother, the patient. She detailed that services were a lifeline to her and her mother. Nurse visits about care needs, social work visits that help their family uh, interact and connect despite her mother's declining mental status, spiritual support and prayers and the routine bath and hygiene visits from the aide whom her mother referred to as her special friend. Uh, Though this woman acknowledged her mom's stability physically, she questioned whether hospice evaluated her mental and psychological deterioration in the decision. These are problems that are exacerbated exacerbated without uh, with changes in routine, such as the discontinuation of the hospice provider she had become accustomed to. Hospice and death are not dirty words. Ultimately, I wonder whether there are additional questions we should be asking beyond what happens to people if they live too long. That's the author talking there. These concerns include whether hospice is appropriately structured to care for people dying from chronic illnesses, heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, and 
Alzheimer's disease, all fall in the top causes of death for those age 65 and older. When it's nearly impossible to predict when there are when these people are six months away from death, hospice care focuses on the quality of life and addresses the symptoms of an illness rather than treating the disease itself. This focus of care makes patients feel better as they remain at home instead of going in and out of the hospital on a repeating loop. A driving reason for Jimmy Carter's decision to enter hospice, and it centers on making them feel the best they can for the remainder of their life. Research shows that when you compare patients who use hospice with those who do not, matched by demographics such as age, race, gender, and diagnosis, the hospice patients live longer. It might be that hospice care itself that helps a patient's condition stabilize, eventually rendering them ineligible to receiving care. That's like a catch-22. They get better when they go on hospice, which is only designed to maintain, not designed to uh, cure their conditions, but they do improve anyway. And so um, what they're saying here is that since they show improvement, they get thrown out of the hospice program, which is a um, uh, confusing and possibly um, damaging factor in their continued existence. So going on with the article, though imminent death is assumed when most people hear that somebody has entered hospice, longer stays provide greater benefits to patients and families, including less pain, better symptom management overall, and more attention to their end-of-life wishes. Even when people enter hospice believing that it's primarily about death, their experience with care might change their perceptions. To understand hospice based on dignity, positive relationships with staff, and peace. With this perspective, it's easy to see why at least three months is suggested as an optimal length of time for hospice care and why it's such a difficult benefit to lose when a patient is removed from care. Hospice was a grassroots effort initially offering, uh, uh, initially falling outside of the traditional medical system and only formalized in U.S. policy in 1982. That was the year after Jimmy Carter left office. Hmm. Uh, though it has been more than 40 years since hospice was established in healthcare policy, we have a long way to go before it's fully embraced by patients, families, clinicians, and communities. There is power in public voices, and um, including the woman whose mother was 104 years old and was taken off of hospice. <clears throat> if reaching the age of 104 is not your definition of the end of life, we need to be thinking about how to change that definition to bring comfort and care to those who need it. And the author winds up by saying hospice and death are not dirty words. Perhaps the more we talk about them, the better off we'll be in life and death. So I don't know. I've never really given a lot of thought to hospice. I've been hoping never to have to have it apply to me. Uh, Randy, on the other hand, likes the idea of somebody uh, catering to his every uh, wish and uh, <laughs> desire. So I don't know what your opinion about hospice is, Randy. I, while you were discussing that topic, Doug, I was here just letting my mind wander just a little bit about hospice. But so I, I could envision myself in hospice and then, you know, one of the doctors comes in and goes, hey, Andy, how you doing today? Oh, I'm good, doc. Got some good news and I got some bad news for you. Well, what's that, doc? You're getting much better. That's the good news. The bad yeah. news is, is you're out of here next Friday. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's kind of what the article was saying. Uh, if people improved with the hospice care, 
then they get the rug pulled out from under them when hospice is uh, removed from their daily, their regimen, their medical regimen. Um, and hospice can be either in the hospital or in your own home. Yeah. At my mother, now they never used the term hospice, but I could not get the caretaker to get her to the hospital when she became bedridden uh, to get her to the, excuse me, to the um, doctor's office as often as she needed to go. And so uh, I wound up with a doctor that came in anytime it was necessary or desirable and did a house call. And yeah. at that time, this is like in the, uh, in the 2005 ish area. And I discovered this guy and he made happily made house calls to my mother and to a woman's facility down, uh, down the street who, uh, she had like six or eight people living in a home that, uh, you know, was like the last stop. It was not a nursing home. It was like a group home for people in good shape. And, and, uh, so this doctor took care of all those people. They didn't have to go to doctor's office visits anywhere. He came to them for the most part. And, uh, that was a wonderful relief. And I, I think that's like hospice. He suggested to me one time that we ought to put my mother on palliative care. He didn't say hospice, but he said palliative care. And I looked it up after that. And what he wanted to do was the same thing that hospice does keep her right. happy pain-free, but you know, there was no disease that she had that could be cured. So no heroic efforts at life-saving. Right. right. Well, yeah. I've had some personal experience with folks that I've known in hospice. And I've got to tell you, Doug, that I my hat is off to hospice nurses. I mean, the if there's any sort of a nurse that you know comes yeah. equipped with uh, wings, a right. hospice a hospice nurse is one of those folks. I couldn't agree more. Mary's father had a stroke. He was on hospice at home, though, and the hospice nurse came in and predicted his exact time of death based on her experience after having looked at him or examined him uh, the morning that he had his stroke. And it was yeah. um, it was uh, obviously a skill that she had gained with years of experience, and they all loved her when her visits ended. It was kind of a sad day in the uh, Mary household. Oh, yeah, I get it. I've been there, done that, had the experience. Well, you know something, Doug? We have used up our 75 cents worth of time. It sure goes quickly. It <laughs> Randy. does. Randy. Well, Doug, we're out of, we're out of money. So let, we, let, let we'll, have many, we'll have many more in the near future, though. Yeah, that's true. So save your quarters. Save your quarters. We need 75 cents every time. It's just like a wash. Or I probably washing is more than that now, right? I'm guessing it's many dollars. I, you know, yeah. <laughs> I haven't you been in probably, a laundromat in a long time, but you could probably put a credit card in there and you get some wash now as opposed to two quarters. Yeah. And then you feel washed out when that bill shows up and you find out <laughs> how much it really costs you. Oh, yeah. Well, let's go ahead and land the plane. Uh, I can hear it coming in on 32 left today. So let's go ahead and do that. But I've got a few things I always like to cover first. Anybody that wants to reach out and communicate with Doug, he enjoys doing that. And you can do that with an email address of dbj at mlmmailbag.com. Don't forget, Doug is licensed nationwide to help you with your Medicare supplement planning. Check us out at medicareforthelazyman.com. We would really appreciate it, you know, coming up on year end, if you could find a place to, you know, float a couple reviews for us on the book, on the on the podcast, on the website. You know, we can any content that we produce, we'd love to have you review it. 
Last but certainly not least, thank you for joining us today. We have a lot more fun with you than without you, because without you, it's a pretty, pretty quiet podcast. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, and having said that, if you have not been watching your wristwatch, you have just spent about 32 and a half minutes with Doug Jones, the anti-insurance insurance guy from Oklahoma. No more. He is up in the high ground, hiding out behind Cave Creek, watching in his army surplus binoculars, watching for Medicare Advantage Plan zombies. And I'm going to say that my <laughs> Advantage Plan zombie watching has paid off. We've got some great articles coming up. So, ladies and gentlemen, come back and join Randy and me for our next episode very, very soon. See you then.